This is Brian Kabatek along with Sean Karnickian on Civil Action. We're coming to you uh, weekly to bring an update on cases, important cases that come down that affect your practice, that affect plaintiff practices, mostly based in California. We go to the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, and we try to give people a quick review of important cases in about 20 or 30 minutes each week. And before we jump in today, uh, we wanted to say that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us some feedback. You can write a review, whether you like it, whether you don't, whether you find Brian boring or not. Um, not. No, I mean, it's up to the people, and and we'll let them judge. So we we look forward to your feedback. And if you want to contact us, you can reach us on all social media at Cabotech LLP, or our website is kbklawyers.com. So today, I think we have five cases, right, Brian? Right. We're going to, first of all, we're going to focus on uh, arbitration. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about arbitration, three arbitration cases that came down. And then we have another case about the primary assumption of risk, the firefighters rule, and it's a kind of starts in a PI case, so that'll be interesting. And last, we have an insurance case from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and I think that comes out of Washington, right, Brian? Yes, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal is actually based in San Francisco, Sean. Did you know that? Well, how come it covers Washington? San Francisco's in, I think, California. Never mind. We'll explain it some other time, too. I think if we also have time, we're going to cover one case that involves uh, expert witness and supplemental designation of expert witness. It's procedurally important. It's a short case, but it's an important rule of law because I've seen both issues of that come up. So we'll see if we can squeeze that one in as well. So the first case we were going to talk about is Lamps Plus versus Varela. This came down from the Supreme Court, and there were two other Supreme Court um, arbitration decisions that came down this term, and those two were all unanimously decided. But this one was the one that was split 5-4, and it's, it's super interesting, and it's kind of it's infuriating, and it kind of shows the trend towards um, arbitration agreements being upheld. So Lamps right. Plus. So those other cases, we're not going to talk about them today, but those other cases effectively upheld arbitration in most contexts. We hate arbitration. Any kind of agreement that you enter into where you give up your right to litigate a case before a dispute arrives is fundamentally wrong in my humble opinion. And of course, there's no problem with people agreeing after a dispute to arbitrate their dispute. But there's been this trend now for over a decade with the United States Supreme Court in enforcing arbitration. We seem to talk about this every single week. These arbitration issues come up every week because as they're eviscerating the jury system with arbitration, uh, it's constantly being litigated because of the fundamental unfairness. So. This case, Lamps Plus, a place you probably shop at often. What, are the, what, do, what do you think they sell, Brian? I have no idea, Sean. Okay. Why don't we look it up? Look, look, we can look it up, but I, I venture to guess that they sell lamps at Lamps Plus. What's the plus for? I don't know, but you, you referred to it as Lamps R Us uh, earlier today, So, but it's Lamps Plus. And uh, in this case, they are a retailer, and there was a data breach that led to the disclosure of about 1,300 employees' tax information. So one of those employees, Mr. Varela, filed a class action in federal district court in Lamps Plus, of course, moved to compel individual arbitration. Um, and they also uh, argued that the arbitration agreement requires that the arbitrations be done individually and can't even be arbitrated on a class-wide basis. Now, here's where it's interesting, because we know that there's a case going back uh, almost 10 years called Stolt-Nielsen from the United States Supreme Court that said there can be class action waivers in agreements where you only have individual arbitration and no right of any kind whatsoever to class actions. I remember when that case came out, I thought, how could that be? How could people give up the right to have class actions or participate? But that's what the court held, is that if the agreement says no class actions, 
there's no class actions even in an arbitration. And that's separate from an arbor agreement that requires arbitration as opposed to being able to bring a civil action in, in court, right? Right, but if you combine both of them, you can have an agreement which, at least up until the times of the Lamps Plus case, unambiguously says arbitration and unambiguously says no class actions, you actually will have a mandatory arbitration with no class actions. However, what happened in this case is that the arbitration agreement was not the model of clarity. Right, and this this case kind of changes that. Now, the ar arbitration agreement was ambiguous, and I think the Supreme Court, even the majority, agrees that there was some ambiguity as to whether or not this agreement requires um, arbitrations to be done individually as opposed to allowing for a class-wide arbitration. But despite the ambiguity, the court said instead of looking at state law, we look at merely the Federal Arbitration Act, and if there is any intent at all to arbitrate, you have to arbitrate, regardless of what your state law says. So state law could say unconscionable. State law could say ambiguity. If there is a, a agreement to arbitrate in principle, you have to arbitrate. And there is also a common law principle that specifically says ambiguous contracts are construed against the drafter, and the Supreme Court kind of threw that out. They threw said, it out the Get window. Get out of here. That, that has Get no, out of here. We no love arbitration whatsoever. so much that we're going we're gonna to enforce this. Because there's no language that explicitly says that they can bring their arbitration on a class-wide basis, therefore the ambiguity should be construed in um, the drafter's favor, which is the em employer's favor right. in this case. And the legal genius on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas, he he's the only one who said that the arbitration agreement wasn't ambiguous. So everybody else agreed that it was ambiguous. But then the court went so far as to say, even if there's an ambiguity about whether or not uh, there should be class actions in arbitration or no class actions in arbitration. The only way you can ever have a class action arbitration is if now the agreement specifically says class actions are going to be arbitrated, which, of course, no corporation in America the very next day had in their, in their agreements an, a, a statement that you have to arbitrate class actions. In fact, what they probably all now say is no arbitration, no class actions whatsoever. Yeah. And the, the dissent, though, ripped it apart. And they said, you're throwing out principles of law. You're throwing out principles of common law. You're not looking to the states. You're just continuing to invent and make law to protect corporations. Yeah, the FAA says that um, you can't apply law, state law that discriminates against arbitration agreement. And Justice Kagan said, well, this common law principle that ambiguities are construed against the drafter isn't a law that discriminates against arbitration agreements, but it, it doesn't matter because you know, she, she and uh, I think Justice Sotomayor write, wrote the other one. They, they were all outnumbered five to four, so bad news. Well, except for the fact that arbitration is here to stay until we realize that the only way it's going to go away since the Federal Arbitration Act is an act of Congress is an act of Congress that starts making inroads into arbitration. And until then, young lawyers everywhere and law students should learn a lot about arbitration because apparently that's where all litigation is headed if this, this trend continues. Yeah. So let's go on to another bad decision. This one out of the second DCA in California, and this is called Diaz versus Sohon, Sohan Enterprises. And the facts in this case are, are really interesting that the majority, it was a 2-1 decision, the majority actually found the arbitration agreement enforceable. 
Erica Diaz is the plaintiff here. She was working for this company, and the company one day decided we're going to pass out arbitration agreements. Not one day. On December 2nd, they decide. That's true, and, that, and that's important. We'll, we'll find out why that's important in a little bit. December 2nd, they decide they're going to pass out arbitration agreements and make everyone sign them. They have a meeting. They say, you have to sign this. They also announce at the meeting. By the way, the agreement in, is in English, and Ms. Diaz only speaks Spanish and only reads Spanish. Um, they pass out these agreements in English. They say they have an English explanation. Uh, Spanish explanation that this is an arbitration agreement, and if you keep working here, even if you don't sign it, even if you don't want to sign it, even if you tell us you don't want to sign it, I mean, I don't think they articulated that much, but they say if you don't sign this but keep working here, you're still agreeing to arbitrate this. Now, they did explain it to her in Spanish, and they said that if you literally walk out this room, you've agreed to the arbitration agreement. So, so Ms. Diaz never signed it. And in fact, the meeting takes place on December 2nd. On December 19th, they have a meeting with her where she specifically says, I don't want to sign the arbitration agreement. On December 20th, she meets with her lawyer and her lawyer sends a letter to the employer rejecting the agreement. And on December 22nd, she files a workplace discrimination lawsuit. The employer goes and files a motion to compel arbitration and I think the trial court got it right. Yeah, the trial court said that this is a take-it-or-leave-it contract, a contract of adhesion, and therefore it's substantively um, or it's procedurally unconscionable. We don't even have to get to the merits of the agreement. We don't have to look at anything else. Just the manner in which it was presented, take-it-or-leave-it. You either work here or, or you sign this or you can work here. So literally, according to the majority in this case, the majority threw out the trial court's ruling, they first decide that they're going to review it de novo and throw out all the factual findings that the trial judge makes. And then the next thing they do is basically come down with the rule that it can be a take-it-or-leave-it agreement. It makes no difference, and Ms. Diaz had two choices. She could walk out of the meeting and walk back to her workstation agreeing to arbitrate all disputes, even for past wrongs, or she could walk out of the meeting, get in her car, and drive home and quit because those are the only two choices she had. Ridiculous decision, in my opinion. However, there's a brilliantly written dissent that first takes apart the issue about de novo review versus um, the reliance upon the factual issues that the trial court ruled on. And um, the, the dissent finds that the reasoning... Um, was sound, and there was factual findings made by the trial court, namely that it's a contract of adhesion, which is a factual finding. The majority says there's no other factual findings beyond the finding of adhesion, which is a factual finding in and of itself. But the court said you, you can have an agreement where one side says this is the deal, and the other side says no, this is not the deal, and then the court finds that there's a meeting of the minds. That's not a meeting of the minds. And the principle behind these arbitration agreements is that there's some agreement, whether it's written or even if you want to you know, be generous to them, an implied agreement. And the, and the dissent says, no, there's no, there's no implied agreement to arbitrate, especially when Ms. Diaz walked in. And the facts here are that Ms. Diaz walked in and said, I do not want to sign this agreement. Well, I, my first problem with this is why should there be any arbitration agreement at all that's implied by conduct as opposed to being in writing so it shows a clear meeting of the mind of the parties? And secondly, um, as the dissent brilliantly says in its closing paragraphs, quote, I believe that courts, not employers, should determine whether or not the implied agreement to um, 
arbitrate whether there is an implied agreement to arbitrate. And here, the uh, majority was clearly saying that because the employer decided that the arbitration agreement was valid, it was valid. Next, let's move on to an arbitration case where we think the court got it right, which is favorable to plaintiffs. Uh, this is subcontracting concepts versus DeMello. Uh, this came down in April from the first appellate district, originated in San Francisco. The plaintiff here was an employee, and he was given an arbitration agreement, asked to sign it on the spot, very much like the employee in the last case we talked about. The agreement was in English. The plaintiff was... Uh, he spoke Portuguese. His native language is Portuguese and not fluent enough to fully understand documents written in English. And so we'll get to why this, this agreement was, was wrong. And in this case, ultimately what happened is the Court of Appeal uh, confirmed that there was no arbitration agreement, no valid arbitration agreement. But um, this agreement was completely a mess from the beginning. But what the court focused on here was that in determining whether or not a arbitration agreement is valid, you have to look at both procedural and substantive unconscionability. Right, so procedural unconscionability is the manner in which it's presented to someone. Um, and you know, the bargaining, looks at the bargaining power between, between the two parties. And over here, uh, we talked about how it was presented as a take it or leave it, you can't negotiate it. So that's one ding against them. Second, it was in English, and the, um, the plaintiff here didn't speak English. He spoke Portuguese, so and it has a bunch of legal terminology in there. That's not fair. Um, and uh, it referred to the American Arbitration Association, but didn't state which rules would apply. So that's, that's further uh, unconscionability there. It's lack of clarity. So they find that it's... That it's Procedurally uh, unconscionable. Right, but then they go to substantive unconscionability, because you have to have both. You can't get one without the other. So in the substantive unconscionability, here were some of the factors that it was substantively unconscionable. First of all, the employee had to share the cost of the arbitration, clearly in violation of Armendariz, a California Supreme Court case that says the employer has to pay. Can't do that. Second, it waived their right to claim any claims for, um, cl for, for damages or attorney's fees or under the Private Attorney General Act. Third... I believe it also waived any right to punitive damages. That's correct? right. That's and, right. And um, it said that uh, there was no way that they could claim um, uh, anything through the labor commissioner. So there was no right to bring any claims through the labor commissioner. Which is, yeah, just that's just absurd. So, you know, it went through this list of factors. I think it breaks them out into six because it talks about each one of them separately and talks about why that's not allowed. And ultimately, it, it found that the order denying the petition to compel arbitration it, it was, was proper and, and it occurred. And, and it I deprived the employee of all the rights an employee has in California, even notwithstanding arbitration. So you can't have valid arbitration agreements. As much as we hate them, you can have them. But then it went on to say that this was so bad you couldn't even sever the bad provisions, and they threw out the uh, the arbitration agreement in its entirety. So subcontracting concepts versus DeMello. Look that up next time someone's trying to compel arbitration and compare it to the facts in your case. Next is uh, Harry versus Ring the Alarm, LLC. So this case involves a historically... Uh, architecturally significant house in Los Angeles. It comes out of the second DCA, and it involves the uh, fireman's rule. 
It involves so, the Sheets Goldstein house, which is actually a really cool house designed by John Lautner, but it has no relevance as to this case. Well, actually, I disagree with you. It does have relevance in this case because of the architectural significance of the house. The house was regularly used for functions. It was used for tours. It was used for parties. And that's really how this all came about. But before we get into the facts of the case, Sean, what is the fireman's rule? So the fireman's rule is basically primary assumption of risk doctrine. It says that if you, if your part of your job is to protect against a certain hazard or risk, and you are injured by that hazard or risk, there is no liability for your injuries. It literally comes out of the fact that a firefighter who goes into a house that's on fire and gets injured as a result of fighting the fire, not something else, but fighting the fire, generally can't sue the homeowner because the fire caused his or her injuries. Right, and the public policy behind it is we want to encourage these people to engage in their job. They're, they're compensated for it, and we hold them in high regard. We also don't want to create liability and discourage them from doing their job. Well, we want them to do their job. We don't want, but, but the other side of that coin is that if you don't um, award them for damages that are inherent with the risk, then you're discouraging from doing their job. So I kind of disagree with you on that, but I think the, the ultimate purpose is public policy purposes. You can't go around every time something happens to somebody that's completely foreseeable in their job suing them. Now, on the other hand, there are lots of exceptions to it. Like every rule, there's tons of exceptions. But let's get to the specific facts of this case. So here, Edward Harry, the plaintiff, worked as a site representative during an event at this house, at James Goldstein's house, the Lautner property. And there was some event going on, and he's someone there that making sure that's making sure everything is going smoothly. And he's like the manager, right? Right. He's like the manager. Right. No, no, nothing in the job description, and th these are in the facts of the case, nothing in his job description about him, uh, you know, engaging in safety protocols. or I mean, obviously, he kind of has to make sure people are safe, and if there's something obvious, he's going to stop people from getting hurt. Uh, but he's not like a safety rep. He's not a safety person. He's not a uh, medical person that's on site for emergencies or anything like that. Nothing in that world. So he brings, he gets hurt on site, and he brings a lawsuit against uh, Goldstein and the company that had hired him for negligence and premises liability. Well, he got hurt. He specifically got hurt while he was giving tours to a architectural portion of the house, and part of his job was to make sure that people safely got to this, this section of the house. Yeah, it was a platform that was suspended over a hillside, and he fell off the platform. But his injury occurred as a result of, of falling on the property in something that wasn't really part of the job. But the case went to jury verdict, and the judge gave the fireman's rule instruction, the Casey instruction, the jury instruction on... Right. At the close of plaintiff's case, the judge allowed, um, or the judge gave the instruction about primary assumption of risk. And it was, plaintiff Edward Harry claims that he was harmed by the negligence of the defendant. While Edward Harry was performing his job duties as a site representative at the property, uh, James Goldstein is not liable if his injury arose from a risk inherent in the occupation of site representative. Uh, and then they were asked if this was a risk inherent, and the argument on appeal was you shouldn't have ever given this jury instruction. That's right. So the, the uh, Court of Appeal sent it back and ordered a new trial. But let's talk a little bit about why this doesn't fall, what, what Harry, Mr. Harry was doing, doesn't fall into the fire, fire, uh, firefighter's rule. Um, he was 
working as a site manager or a site representative, they, there was some questioning about this, and there's a whole exchange in the opinion that's, that's interesting to read, where he was asked, isn't part of your job, or while you were on that platform, weren't you trying to keep people away from the edges? And he said, yes, and, they, and then it goes on to ask, and that's part of what you do as a site rep, correct? And he said, a part of it. Um, but then the court goes on to say there's nothing in his job description or his job duties that has to do with safety or that specifically says that you know this condition is dangerous. You've got to make sure that people don't fall off the edge of this platform. Obviously, if he's standing there and there's people around, part of what he's considering is I don't want people to fall off this platform. Yeah, I, I think really what they ultimately came down with was whether or not the job was inherently dangerous and what his job duties were were inherently dangerous. So the whole job doesn't have to be inherently dangerous. The, the, but was this portion of the job and what he was doing inherently dangerous? So they looked whether or not there was public policy to expand the Fireman's Fund rule. He wasn't paid um, to, to extra money because there was a specific danger or specific type of danger here. Um, so what it really falls back on is whether or not, as the prudent property owner, the property owner did anything wrong and the fireman's, fund, the fireman's rule doesn't apply. Uh, the the uh, defendant here argued that Harry was injured by the very, quote, by the very thing he was hired to prevent, a fall off an unguarded platform, end quote. And then the Court of Appeals says, we are not persuaded. Um, and, and that's absolutely right. Look, if he was a platform monitor or he was the safety manager on site whose job was to make people make sure people don't fall off this platform, I, I would agree that well, you know, I don't the even know. I, I don't even apply. know if that would be enough under this decision. I think it would have to be that it was a situation where he had to stand on the edge of the platform and tell people to back off. That might be inherently dangerous. And You're right, because he, he has to be kind of risking his own life, because that's why this rule exists, and, and people that do that, that face danger, are compensated additionally for facing that danger. Right. Like hazard pay. Like, basically. for example, um, if you... Me having to work for you. Would be inherently dangerous. It, it is inherently dangerous. And, and if you got hazard pay for that, then the assumption of the risk might apply, and then there'd be uh, a preclusion of liability. Wait, does this mean you're going to sue me? I, I, I would, but I, I'm assuming... You know, it would be tough because there would be a good argument that, you know, the firefighter's rule does apply, and I wouldn't be able to recover. Yeah, you've been here so long, there's assumption of the risk anyways. Right. I know what I'm getting into. I went into this with my eyes wide open, and, uh, you know, it's inherently dangerous, and I've known all along. You've got to stop relying on people to think that just because you're lovable, they're going to give you money. Well, you know, th that's why it's going to be a challenge. It's uh, going to be a tough battle against you. Um, next things, case. One of the things you needed a battle against me is a, a battery of expert witnesses, right? Yeah, that's right. And that comes from the dual versus who's the defendant on this? Well, Superior Court of Alameda Sorry, County. Yeah, that's right. The defendant is dual. Crean is the actual real party in interest. So personal injury case, facts really aren't relevant. The only thing that's important about this case is it involves um, the exchange of expert witness designations and a complete and misread by a judge who clearly had no understanding or, or idea of the law. However, I'm really glad they published this decision because I think it's important that this rule be right out there in case you get another judge who doesn't understand the exchange of expert witnesses. So there's initial exchange of expert witness, and then there's a supplemental exchange of expert witnesses. Here, the uh, plaintiff designated two experts, defendant designated two experts on the same day, simultaneous exchange as the code requires. Then a few days later, uh, plaintiff designated, uh, no, sorry, plaintiff designated a number of experts, maybe I think 
seven experts or something like that. Defendant designated two experts. Only two. That's right. Plaintiff designated seven experts. So there were five additional experts in different areas that the defendant hadn't previously designated. So what do you do? The code provides for supplemental designations for exactly this purpose. And uh, the defendant then, during timely designated supplemental experts and their supplemental expert designation, um, responding to all five of the experts. That for example, the, the plaintiff designated a life care planner. The defendant didn't initially designate a life care planner. And so the defendant supplementally designated a life care planner. And I can't think of any other purpose for which to use the supplemental designation. Right. Uh, And I think what happens is the court looked at this as rebuttal witnesses that are supposed to just simply rebut as opposed to be their own individual witness. And in this case, the court said, uh, the trial court said, completely misunderstanding the law, no, you can't designate those other five witnesses. And I can't get my arms around what the judge was thinking But the Court of Appeal comes out with this decision to say it's not a surprise. This is the whole purpose behind the exchange of expert witnesses. And in in saying that, I think you're right. People should read this opinion no matter what because if you're ever designating expert witnesses or you have issues with timeliness, things like that, because aside from just this principle, the case does a very good job, reads almost like a a review or an overview of all the cases that govern and all the the statutes that govern designations. It's like a rudder guide book on expert witness designations and what the purpose is and how it works. So there's nothing wrong with initially designating expert witnesses. You may, or you may identify an area where you haven't designated an expert witness. You want to wait to see if the other side designates an expert witness on that topic. And then when they do, you have an absolute right within the statutory period of time, which I think is 20 days, to counter-designate. The trial court was was arguing that it's prejudice, it's it's belated. They should have known they needed these experts. The defendant should have known they needed That's these experts. Ridiculous, which is ridiculous. And um, you know, I I think the trial court in this case was trying to control a trial and and maybe to force the parties to settle or something like that. But the real lesson to take away from this is: hey, make a good faith effort to designate your experts initially. The other side comes up with a bunch of experts that you didn't anticipate. then you have the right, just as they would have the right, to supplementally designate. I I think it does have to be um, at least in part response to an expert that the other side designates. Oh, I think it absolutely does have to be in response. It doesn't have to be the same exact title, but it has to be in some way or another in in response to the other side. Otherwise, you're just getting a brand new shot at an expert. You forgot to designate one. You designate one in your supplemental. You can't do that if you forget. Well, for example... uh, the other side designates a life care planner. You don't designate a life care planner. You have the right then to supplement, right? Right. But the other side doesn't designate a life care planner. You never designated a life care planner. I don't think the statute is intended then to give you another bite at a new set of experts. Absolutely not. It, you can't do that. That would be prejudicial. That would be surprised because it's not responding to something. So Dual versus Superior Court, that's D-U-A-L-L versus Superior Court. Take a read. Our last case is in Genco Holdings versus Ace American Insurance Company. Ace is a large commercial insurer who writes policies for large companies, particularly industrial companies. Um, I I think that this case uh, isn't super relevant, but the reason I brought it up was because it it, it raises at least one important issue of insurance law to always keep in mind when you're dealing with insurance policies, particularly first-party policies. It is a case out of the state of Washington. It applies Washington law. It's from the Ninth Circuit. It's a Ninth Circuit case. 
came down in April of 2019. Um, and what is important about this case is that there was a claim that was made. It was made late, but it was still made within the statute of limitations. And the insurance company in this case tried to argue that um, it was too late and that as a result of being too late, it wasn't a valid claim. So what is important about this case is the prejudice rule in California, known as the substantial prejudice rule, there can be conditions subsequent uh, or conditions preceding, particularly conditions subsequent um, in, a, uh, in a policy. This was a condition preceding to whether or not there was going to be coverage, and it was that they had to report it within a certain amount of time, and if they didn't report it within a certain amount of time, they had, the carrier had the right to say they were prejudiced. So what, what does this case articulate? What's the rule that it kind of changes or establishes? I, I think it just restates the rule that in policy conditions, the insurance company has to establish that it is actually prejudiced, not that on paper there might be something wrong or it violated a policy term, but it has to be actually prejudiced. In California, it goes one but, And you mean further. actually prejudiced by the insured's failure to comply with some policy With term. the condition, that's right. right. And in this case... The, the court said um, there's no indication here that the carrier was actually prejudiced. In fact, the carrier's own expert testified they weren't prejudiced. The carrier was going for a bright line rule. You blew it. It's too late. You're out of luck. The court affirms the fact that it has to be actual prejudice. California courts even go one step further. They require substantial, substantial prejudice. That's substantial right. Substantial prejudice. And what case is that from, Brian? I don't know, Sean. What case is that I from? I don't remember. Good. That's that's good. That's very helpful to everyone who's listening to this right now. It's actually from a series of cases. In fact, in California, there has never been an appellate decision in the history of California law that have found substantial prejudice in an insurance policy to an insurer for failure to comply with a condition preceding or subsequent in the policy, with the exception of examinations under oath, which is a different story and a different issue completely. So the takeaway from this case is carriers have to establish actual prejudice substantial prejudice in California, it's almost impossible to do. And the reason for that is good public policy, which is uh, an insurance company has obligations to pay under the policy. Uh, it's not like an insured can go out and get another policy after a loss. Right, it's so, a special type of contract. And it's a special type of contract. And so that's Ingenco Holdings versus Ace American. If you are handling insurance claims if, and you have an issue where the insurance company is arguing, well, you didn't, your insured didn't comply, your client didn't comply, so we're not going to cover it. These are the types of cases you need to look at. And if you do have that, we'd be interested in talking to you. We do a lot of insurance bad faith. And um, you, know, you can read more about what we do if you go online to kbklawyers.com. You can follow us on social media at Cabotech LLP. Um, and if you did like this, please subscribe and leave us some feedback. Or reach out to us and leave us some feedback or tell us about interesting cases you want to you hear about or an interesting experience you've had. And we'd love to talk to you about that. It's important each week that we get feedback from you. It's important that we understand what you like or don't like so we can focus on it. Uh, I think these are useful. I hope that in a short period of time you learn a little bit about what's going on in the trends of the law instead of having to sit and read long cases. That's Sean's job. And we're going to keep doing these and keep pumping information, pumping information out, but we need to hear back from you. Get back to us. Let us know how boring you found Brian. Or, or, I'm not you know, boring. How exciting you you say that every me. week. I'm not boring. Uh, that's just because people, people like me. That's the people you pay, Brian.